Let's pray for one another. Father, we're, our heart's desire is to meet with you, to hear from you. And Lord, you've blessed your people with your word. Lord, to do that in a way, really, that's unreserved, where we can just sit and let it wash over us. And so we pray your word would do that today. And Lord, we know so often your word is effective when hearts are receptive, and so we're praying, Lord, that indeed our hearts would be receptive. So many things block us. Lord, cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, flesh. And so, Lord, for an hour, 45 minutes, whatever, we pray, Lord, that all that could be put aside so that we can just hear. And you can bless as you do, as you promise to do. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 24, one of the final verses, verse 27, uh, indeed, it actually may be the final verse. It says this. Now, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, we, we should have just sort of wrapped everything up together last week, but really that final verse really ties into where the next chapter is going to go. And so that's why we're going to start there today. If you weren't with us last week, uh, then you may not be familiar, or perhaps you were and you've forgotten. But what we learned last week is from the previous chapter, there was a fellow by the name of Felix. He was the governor uh, of the uh, Judea region there, the capital of it being Caesarea. He was the governor there of that promise, pro uh, province. And we know that historically, we know that he did that from the year 52 to the year 60. And so we are right around the year 58 when Paul comes to the city of Caesarea and has the first of his trials there in that city. And as this verse begins, now when two years had elapsed, now we can date that as being the year 60. And so we are right around the year 60 AD. This man Felix here will be leaving the city of Caesarea. And it says, as a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. And so Paul went before this man on trial. We spent our whole time looking at that last week. You can spend your time looking at it again if you've forgotten. And Paul, or Felix, I should say, at the end of it is, is kind of like, you know, Paul, I like what you're saying. I'm interested in what you're saying. But he never committed. He put it off. He said, you know what, uh, why don't you come back at another time, a more opportune time for me to listen to you. And he just kept putting off that which he knew to be true. And the decision that he knew he needed to make, he kept putting that off and putting that off and putting that off. And we have no record historically that he ever responded to Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, be careful. Because when you put off what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, and you say, I'll get back to that later, I'll get back to that later, I'll get back to that later. Whether we're talking about your initial call to salvation or a response to his leading of sanctification in your life, if you keep putting that off, the day is going to come when your heart will harden over, or at the very least, you run the risk of the day coming when your heart, and my heart too, will harden over and will no longer be able to hear the Lord's voice. And Felix never did convert to the Christian faith. He left Paul in prison. Two reasons we see there. Verse 27 tells us that he desired to do the Jews a favor. I'll talk about that more in a moment. And then we learn in verse 26, actually, the previous verse, that in he was hoping the longer he left Paul in prison, either Paul or one of Paul's friends would bring him a bribe. 
Remember, he wasn't a very upstanding individual. He wasn't a real moral leader of the Romans. He, he saw leadership as an opportunity to take advantage of others. And here he saw keeping an innocent man in prison an opportunity to line his pocket a little bit and to receive a bribe. And so he kept Paul there in prison. Now it says he desired to do the Jews a favor. Here's a little historical background. And this wouldn't be found in our Bibles. Uh, sometimes we read elsewhere. And so some of the historical background is this. We're told that during the closing years of the reign of Felix's uh, administration as governor of this particular region, that there was an outbreak of mob violence. I pointed out to you how many of the Jews were not too fond of Felix, despite what that fellow, who was that guy, that the prosecuting attorney, we learned his name last week. It changed my life. Tertullus, thank you. It changed your life, too. Um, <laughs> and how he comes out, and he's like, you're the, you're the most wonderful ruler. We've never had a ruler such as you. We love you, and you're making such wonderful changes. None of that was true. The Jews hated this guy, Felix, and they, kind of, they had these small little rebellions, this pocket of people that kept pushing back against him. And eventually, there, there came to be this to a head there in the city of Caesarea, and Felix used that as an opportunity to murder a whole bunch of Jews and then steal all their property. And for that, the people were like, that is it, I am done. I'm telling Caesar on you, which was their right. The Jews, were, they weren't citizens of Rome, but they were subjects of Rome, so they had the right, they could appeal to Caesar and say, hey, this guy is out of his mind, which they were doing. Now, what some commentators believe is that Felix said, all right, all right, what can I do to make you happy? I'll leave Paul in prison. Would that be okay? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. And he left Paul in prison, and then they told on him anyway. Uh, and eventually, Felix was recalled, and they said, you can't be governor anymore. And he was recalled back to Rome where he was going to have to meet before Caesar and probably be executed for being a poor leader. Remember, what's the primary goal of a leader of Rome? Order. We need order in the, place, the places that we put you. And so he was supposed to be put to death when he went back to Rome, but his brother was good friends with the Caesar. That's how he got his brother the job of being governor. His brother was good friends with the Caesar and said, hey, could you just like send him away somewhere kind of thing? And that's what they did. And he was sort of sent off into exile. And eventually, as I mentioned to you, he committed suicide um, there. But that's the story of Felix. And so where it says he desired to do the Jews a favor, it seems like it was, hey, if I do this for you, would you not tell on me? Uh, but they told on him uh, anyway. So verse 27 says, and two years had elapsed, and Paul, uh, it, well, it says that two years had elapsed, and Paul had still, was still left there in prison. Now remember, at the end of his trial, just a little bit earlier, what we saw there was he said, look, I like what you're saying, but I, I need more information. Let's bring the tribune. Let's bring that guy, Lysias, who sent you here. Let's bring him down. We can question him. And so presumably, he's still waiting for this guy, Lysias, to come, that he had actually never come down there. And two years have gone by. Now, another interesting point under Roman law, the type of custody that Paul was in, Paul's not a convicted man at this time. He's sort of waiting for that trial. He's been indicted, and now he's waiting to actually have this trial take place here or for a second trial to take place where more witnesses could be brought in. Under Roman law, the longest that you could be kept in prison in that sort of a holding state was two years. And so two years is over, and so Paul has sort of waited out the clock 
and he should be let go. But as we see here, Felix was willing to do that. And he decided not to declare him innocent, to do the Jews a favor, keep him in prison, even though the law said he had to let him go. Well, as I pointed out, he was recalled to Rome, and then he lived kind of in exile, essentially, um, for the remainder of his days. Now, his replacement, we learn, is in verse 27. It's a guy named Porcius Festus. That's a fun name uh, that he has there. We have boring names in our society, Bob and Greg. Uh, Porcius Festus, that's a good name. And so this fellow here, uh, Porcius Festus, succeeds uh, Felix. Porcius Festus was perhaps as opposite of uh, this guy Antonius Felix uh, as could be. They, they have a couple of similarities here and there, but they were very opposite people. One commentator, he said this, Felix has been described as undoubtedly a bad man, while Festus as undoubtedly a good one. He was, he was a relatively good man. He tried to serve well. He tried to be a good leader uh, in his society and there in Caesarea. He was opposite, however, of this guy Felix. And he demonstrated himself, as Felix demonstrated himself to be a procrastinator. Here's an example of how the two are opposite. Uh, Festus got right to it. And so notice this here. Uh, in this ver first verse of chapter 25, it says, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And so the background is this. He was in Rome or he was somewhere else or whatever. And the Caesar said, hey, we got a new job for you. You're going to be the governor of, uh, of the Judean province and you're going to make your home now in Caesarea. Verse 1, now three days after he arrived there, to serve in that job, he went up to Jerusalem. Now, Caesarea was the, his, the political capital of the Roman province. Jerusalem, however, was the big city. Jerusalem was where things were happening. They're in the Judean province, where, which was primarily comprised of Jews, and Jerusalem was the spiritual capital of the Jews. And in many ways, it was their political capital as well. And so whereas this man's going to set up his, his offices and his home, his White House, if you will, there in Caesarea, he knows, I need to develop a relationship with the Jewish people of this community, and particularly with the leaders of the Jewish people. And so where does he go? He goes to Jerusalem. He doesn't wait a week. He doesn't wait a month. He doesn't wait a year. He gets there within three days, and I appreciate about them. This is a guy that wanted to get in and get on the right foot as he was leading these people. And so he goes to the Jews. As he gets there, immediately those Jews are going to bring up the issue of Paul. And so you can imagine the situation. Hello, everyone. My name is Porcius Festus. I know it's a great name, isn't it? Uh, and, and all of this stuff. And, you know, so tell me, you know, what's on your heart? What have you guys been thinking? You know, what can I do for you, you know, as your new leader? I'm so excited, whatever. And they said, well, there's one thing you can do for us. You just came from Caesarea, right? Yep. Well, there's a guy there. Two years later. And they're still thinking about the Apostle Paul and the problems that he caused two years and a week earlier there in the city of Jerusalem. And they said, that's what you could do for us. You could deal with that guy. And so it had been two years, and Paul was still on their heart, and Paul was still on their mind, and they still hated the man and wanted him to be dealt with. And it seems, hey, you're a new leader. They didn't tell him this, but this is a new leader. Maybe we can take advantage of him. Maybe he'd be willing to do what we're asking him to do to kind of make nice with us and not want to offend us. 
and then we could accomplish our purposes. So let's read the account. Starts in the first uh, five or six verses of the chapter. It says, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews, they laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning to ambush uh, an ambush to kill him on the way. And Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go to Caesarea shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you come down with me or go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Not too original, especially if you were here last week, this is the same scheme that was hatched with the previous governor you know, have them come to another trial and, and we'll get them on the way here. So these Jewish leaders aren't too original in their scheming. And as you see here, their plan was we'll, we'll set up a trial. Paul will be brought to that particular trial. When he gets to a particular area with a bunch of bushes and rocks, we'll jump out, we'll kill him. Any Romans that we need to kill in the process, and Paul will be dead. Same scheme as they brought forth with the tribune last week. They now bring it forth with the governor. And here's the big change about it. Nothing with the scheme, just with the schemers. And so in chapter 24, it was a bunch of zealots that had this idea, and they went, and they basically asked that the religious leaders would sort of be passively involved. You just call for the meeting, we'll handle everything else. Here now, the chief priests and the religious leaders are the ones at the heart of this. And what I'm seeing in that here is a people that have allowed something in them to fester for a period of two years, their heart has gotten darker and darker and darker. And so whereas they were just sort of tacitly involved, now they're right in it. And now they're willing to violate their law. Now they're willing to violate their religious customs. They're, al- they're allowing themselves to entertain hatred and even murder of an innocent individual. Be careful with what you allow to fester in your hearts. I'm not saying you're going to develop into a murderer. But bitterness can set in, and hate can set in, and unforgiveness can set in, because you didn't deal with it earlier on uh, in the circumstance. These guys here, they allowed it to set in, and look what happens to them. They knew that Paul would be acquitted in in a fair trial, and so they don't even want to give Paul a trial. They want to just give the illusion that that's what they want, and then they want to ambush him, and they want to kill him. Now, fortunately for Paul, at least at this time in his life, Festus wasn't as much of a pushover as these Jewish leaders perhaps thought he would be. And so he says, Paul is in Caesarea, and I'll be going there shortly, and if you guys want to come down, you can come down, and he can stand trial there. That's what verse 4 says in so many words. He says, you can send your representatives down, and they can present their charges there, but we're doing it in Caesarea. Now, whether or not Festus knew the intentions of these Jewish leaders, uh, and thus he refused to grant their request, or it just kind of happened, that was his particular response. Either way, the Lord is working through this individual, who's not a believer, but God is working through this individual to accomplish his purposes for Paul's life. His purposes were not that Paul would be killed on the way back to Jerusalem. His purposes were eventually that Paul would get to the city of Rome and be able to testify there. 
And so unwittingly, perhaps, God is at work in this man's life. Verse 6 continues. It says, now after he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. We're still talking about Festus. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and he ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense. He said, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against the Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, he said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on their charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, then no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, well, that to Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. Festus remained in Jerusalem, just about a little over a week, eight to ten days, I think is what it says there. Then he returns down to Caesarea. Notice again, doesn't wait a week, doesn't wait a month or a year. The next day, he takes his seat on the tribunal, on the bench as the judge. And Paul was brought before him. We see that there in verse 6. Once again, Paul's going to have an opportunity to come before a Gentile ruler and defend himself in a situation potentially that could result in his death. And once again, Paul faithfully does so. As these folks did in chapter 24, the religious leaders once more assemble in Caesarea. And once more, they present their charges. We see that there in verse 7. Notice also in verse 7, once more, they don't have any evidence to support their claims. They were just making up things, hoping that it would persuade first Felix and now this man, Festus. And just like they had done in chapter 24, they presented these charges with no evidence. And Paul's given a chance to respond. Well, what do you have to say? They're making all kinds of statements against you. What do you have to say? And Paul, he says, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar. Remember, if you go back and you look at the charges from chapter 20, 24, 25, I guess it was, 24, uh, that's the general thing he was saying. He's trying to lead an insurrection. He's trying to defile our temple. He says, uh, neither against the law of the Jews, nor the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. He says, not true. Fake news, as somebody was fond of saying uh, a few years back. Not the way things went down. It's just not true. I didn't do the things they're saying that I did. In his integrity, Paul is able to simply rely on that integrity. None of this like, yeah, well, what they did was, none of that, just not true. I didn't do anything that they're saying that I did. And I'm confident in that particular fact. And that's what he, he presents to them. Now, Festus is at a loss. I don't know what to do here. And he says, all right, do you want to go up to Jerusalem and have a trial there and I can come up there and they can point out to me where you defiled what they did? And he, so he says that in, in verse 9. Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges? I, it seems to me that the Jews were putting a pressure on this Festus fella. He doesn't have an answer. He doesn't know what to do. Maybe I can placate them. I'll bring them up to Jerusalem or whatever. Do you want to go up to Jerusalem? P perhaps even he's thinking, 
and maybe they'll ambush him on the way and he'll die and my problem will be solved and at least I wasn't involved with it or whatever. We don't know what he's thinking here, but he asked Paul, do you want to go up there or don't you? And as I said earlier, Festus was very much the opposite of Felix, the guy from last year or last week. But in this instance, he's very much the similar because like Felix, he was trying to do the Jews a favor. Not the right thing, not the hard thing, but what would please people around him. He wanted to do the Jews a favor, and that's a hard thing. Sometimes people aren't going to like you. Sometimes, amen? amen. <laughs> Sometimes they're not going to like your decisions. Do the right thing each time, and at the very least, the Lord will be pleased with you. And so, Festus, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem? I love Paul here. Paul said, um, can I put in Greg's words? No. <laughs> he says, that's profound. He says, I'm not going anywhere. I am standing trial where I'm supposed to be standing trial right here before Caesar's tribunal. I'm not going to Jerusalem. Now, remember, Paul's the guy in prison. Paul's the guy in chains here, and he scolds, essentially, Festus. He says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. And then he adds this, to the Jews, I have done no wrong as you yourself, I don't know if he pointed, but he says, as you yourself also know, Festus, if I could put that in my own words, do your job, is what he says to him. Crazy. Now remember, these governors, they could, this isn't Festus's style, but he could kill them if he wanted to and deal with it that way. We saw Felix killed plenty of people. He eventually got in trouble for it, but he killed a whole bunch on the way to getting in trouble. And yet Paul says, do your job. I had a trial before the other guy. I'm having a trial here before you. You yourself know I didn't do anything wrong, and now you want to send me to some place where I'm not even supposed to be to have a trial? I'm not going. And he ends it by saying, uh, I appeal to Caesar. You can see that there at the end of verse 11. He says, look, if I'm a wrongdoer, and I've committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. Paul wasn't afraid to die. And if he had done something wrong, then he had done something wrong. Well, then go ahead and put him to death because he knew anything that he had done wrong was because he was seeking to honor the Lord and do what the Lord was telling him to do. And if the Romans determined that that was something worthy of death, well, then fine, put me to death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, then nobody can give me up to them. He says, I appeal to Caesar. Paul realized he was never going to get a fair trial in Jerusalem. He was probably not even going to get a fair one in Caesarea. And so he exercised his right as a Roman citizen. Sometimes we look at the Roman Empire and think, oh my gosh, that place was crazy. It actually had a whole bunch of democratic rights and principles that we have emulated in our society that were carried over prior to Rome becoming an empire. So Rome became an empire that pretty much ruled the world, but four or 500 years earlier, it started as a relatively small democratic republic that gave the rights to the people. Like unprecedented in the history of the world, gave rights to the people. Some of those rights carried over even into the empire. And we've been talking about a bunch of them. Uh, for instance, you can't be in custody for more than two years. Another one of the rights that we have here is if a... Uh, a subject of Rome felt that they weren't getting fair, like a, a fair process, then they could appeal to the Caesar. And that's what Paul does. That's pretty crazy. Like, who's, who's Paul? Well, to us, he's pretty important. He's not important to anybody there. 
and yet he had the privilege and the right as a Roman citizen and a subject of Rome. He says, I appeal uh, to Caesar. Not the first time that Paul recognized that certain rights that he possessed as a Roman citizen uh, were being violated. And we see him again and again taking full advantage of his rights as a, as a citizen of the society in which he lived. Sometimes as Christians we feel like, you know, I don't want to be a squeaky wheel or whatever. You have rights as citizens. We have rights as citizens. I lay down my rights in my one-on-one -on -one interactions with people, but as a citizen of a nation, I have certain rights. As a citizen of a community, I have certain rights. And Paul exercised those rights. He says, I appeal to Caesar. Verse 12 goes on. Then Festus, notice, when he conferred with his council, that tells me Festus didn't know what to do. Now, like if he said, well, I would like a cup of water, Festus could answer, like, okay, I'll get you a cup of water. But here he has to confer with others, what do you think we should do? And so he says, he does that, I should say, and he says, well, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. It seems like his little council made a decision. Well, the law is if he appeals to Caesar, we have to let him go to Caesar. As a matter of fact, we, we have to make sure he gets to Caesar. And so he comes back to Paul and he says, all right, well, you uh, appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Just for your information, a lot of us are familiar with Caesar Nero. You've heard that name, Caesar Nero. He was a horrible uh, human. Um, he used to, he, he persecuted the Christian church uh, terribly. Uh, he would take folks, cover them with tar, light them on fire, and Christians, and use them as torches for his garden parties that he would have. Um, he was a very, very cruel individual. That's the Ciro that we're speaking of. And Paul here appeals to him. Now, I will say this. At this point in that Caesar's, uh, I, did I say Ciro? I think that's a pizza guy that I used to, I used to go to when I was in high school. Um, Caesar Nero, that Caesar, um, early on in his administration, was pretty fine. He, like, you know, he was a Caesar or whatever. And then something happened with him that changed him. And he became a wicked, wicked individual. People wondered if he was the Antichrist uh, in the early first century just because of the persecution he unleashed uh, against God's people, which we know that the Antichrist will someday unleash on God's people. And so at this point, however, Caesar Nero was not that man. And Paul appeals to him. And the passage is going to continue. It's going to continue in verse 13 with Paul uh, first appearing before two others. And, and there's a reason. He appealed to Caesar. You appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. But fortunately for Festus, some other Roman officials come into town that are going to help Festus. And I'll explain uh, that. Let's read it first, starting in verse 13. It says, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Let me just make a quick point. Many times we think king is the highest one, you know, and then you got princes and dukes or whatever, I don't know, whatever you have, and those others. You might know my friends from England there. Um, and so you got, the, you know, those other people that serve in those lower positions. Uh, a king in that day wasn't necessarily the high one. The high one was Caesar, all right? Caesar was the high one. He, these Herods here and, and throughout the New Testament, they were kings 
I guess we might more call them like a president of a, of a, a country or of a region. They might be a governor, that sort of thing. And so very similar in level to what um, Festus would be as a governor. So that being said, it says, Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea, and they greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, and asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone, before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make defense, his defense concerning the charge laid against him. Verse 17. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul, and it says asserted to be alive, it, it's worded kept asserting to be alive. He wouldn't stop talking about this Jesus guy. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. All right, so we have this guy, Agrippa. Agrippa's a name that pops up in our Bibles a lot, right? It's not the same guy just popping up throughout the Gospels in the beginning, the middle, and the book of Acts here. This is actually a fellow that is referred to in, in history as Herod Agrippa II. All right, Herod Agrippa II and his uh, wife, we'll call her, Bernice, I'll talk about that in a moment. Herod Agrippa II was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one we read about in our Christmas stories that put to death all of the, the boys in Bethlehem two years old and younger. All right, so that is the great-grandfather of the man we're looking at here in the book of Acts. Herod Agrippa II's grandfather was a man by the name of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded a little bit later on in the Gospels. Herod Agrippa II, the man we're talking about here in the book of Acts, his father is the Herod mentioned in Acts chapter 12 that refused, you may remember that story, refused to give God the glory, was struck down dead, uh, and worms they dragged him out, worms came and eat him, and he died suddenly. So these are all the Herods that we are introduced to into a Bible. It's quite a family line, isn't it? One kills all the boys of a city two years and younger, hoping to get the right one. Uh, another one beheads John the Baptist because his stepdaughter, teenage stepdaughter, does uh, a tempting dance for him, and he's so tempted, he's like, I'll give you anything you want. And she says, I like John the Baptist's head. And he's like, oh, no, or whatever. And then the other one won't give God the glory, and it's so significant that God strikes him down on the spot. Right, and here we have Herod Agrippa II. Now, I'll say this. Uh, when compared with his relatives, he was a pretty good king, they say, uh, historically. Um, I mentioned earlier his wife, and her name is mentioned here. His wife was Bernice. I'll put wife in quotation marks because 
depending on who you're asking, it was either his wife or his sister. And so he was in, it was really his sister, but he was in an incestuous relationship. That's one of the things John, remember Baptist, spoke out about? Well, just like his dad, he's jumping in there uh, as well. So that's not good. Um, but he didn't go around killing people for no particular reason. You know, he, he kind of res- like restrained himself, even though he had, to some degree, total power here. Uh, he was a very influential man in uh, Jerusalem, in Israel, amongst the Jews in the Judean province. Um, he wasn't the governor of the Judean province. He was actually the king or the leader of this little section kind of near the area of Galilee. But in addition to those responsibilities, he also had the responsibility to oversee the temple and to select the Jewish high priest or to approve the Jewish high priest. So that made him extremely influential in Israel uh, and in Jerusalem in particular. It also allowed him to be very, very familiar with the Jewish people and the Jewish customs and the Jewish ways. And so here now he comes to the city of Caesarea. The city of Caesarea, for those of you that have been there, you know it must have been a magnificent place then. It's a wonderful place now. It's right on the edge of the Mediterranean. It's beautiful. Uh, you know, so probably a vacation spot of some sorts, whatever it might be. But by chance, he happens to come into Caesarea, right in this whole Paul the Apostle situation there, and he connects with Governor Festus. So verse 13, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea, and they greeted Festus. And then Festus is going to go on to tell them, hey, there's a guy here that has a dispute with the Jews, and I don't know what to do about it. In so many words, verse 14, as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. There's a man left in prison here. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders laid out a case against him, and they wanted me uh, to to declare a sentence of condemnation. That means to put him to death. Festus didn't understand the ways of the Jews. Festus was a Roman, like through and through, which means religiously he was a pagan with a capital P. Sometimes we call people that have no moral view pagan. or whatever. If you call people that, you probably shouldn't. Uh, but sometimes people do that. I've heard stories, whatever. But a capital P pagan is actually what the Romans followed. Lots of different gods for all different purposes and things like that. If anything, Festus uh, historically would be what we might call a secular pagan. You know, someone I'd like, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian, but, you know, they don't really care too much about the faith or do anything except for Christmas Day, that kind of thing. Um, well, that's kind of what he was with paganism. He knew about these things, but he didn't really apply them. He was very much into sort of logic, figure things out. If I can't come up with a rational answer, I'm not interested in it. Well, that's very different from the Apostle Paul, and that's very different from the Jewish people. And so here's Festus, and these two are having a big argument about this guy's religious views and that guy's religious views, and this guy died, and he said he came back to life, and they don't like that he said, and he's like, I don't know what is going on here. This just doesn't make any sense to me. And here comes Herod, who knows the Jews very well. And so he says to him, he says, could I ask you a couple of questions? And he says, yeah, shoot, give it to me. And he starts to lay it out. And as he lays out the scenario, you come to the conclusion of 
that little passage there, verse 22 or whatever, as he lays out the scenario, uh, what does Agrippa say? He says, you know what? I'm down. Let's have a trial tomorrow. Let's really, it's a hearing. Let's have a hearing tomorrow so I can kind of lay it all out. And then, you know, you and I, we can talk about it. And maybe I can give you some advice. Look at verse 22. Uh, Festus says to him, tomorrow you shall hear him. And that's going to give Paul a third opportunity to speak God's truth to a Gentile ruler. So he spoke to Felix, then Festus, and then now he's going to have the opportunity to speak to Agrippa and Agrippa's wife, Bernice. Verse 23, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, they came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him to the emperor. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges that against him. We all agree with that? Not only was it unreasonable to send a guy to Caesar, and so what are you doing here? It was actually illegal to send a guy, according to Roman law, to send a guy to the Caesar for some kind of a trial without laying out the case before him. The problem is Festus doesn't know what to write. He can't write, I tried this guy, I found him innocent, but the people I'm ruling over got really upset about it and I was afraid to make a decision. He can't write that. And so this trial is not really a trial, this is more of a hearing. This is an opportunity to gather some more information for Agrippa to kind of hear it all laid out and then them to go back in a private room and sit together and write a letter that Festus is going to send to the Caesar. Notice, uh, this is one thing I noticed, notice the pageantry of the whole thing. Go back to verse 23. It says, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. It goes on and it talks about how they entered in with the military tribunes. Remember that guy Claudius Lysias? He was in one of those military tribunes. The tribunes they, uh, they ruled over or they oversaw about 600 people. All right? And here there's more than one of them. And I'm sure it wasn't just them walking in. It talks about the prominent men of the city, the city council, or whatever it might be. All of these people start parading in here for this hearing. Now, in your mind's ear, try to hear the horns, you know, the trumpets and stuff that are being tooted drums that are kind of being beat it, beaten as the people are marching in. Picture in your mind's eye sort of the banners and the parades, and everybody's got a banner representing them. So this tribune comes in, and they come representing him, and people in the stands, everybody trying to get a seat to this exciting thing and look and see, and who's that? That's so-and-so coming in, you know, kind of thing. And every, all of this excitement, and then the last verse of verse 23 and it says, and then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And so on one side here, you have all these people of great power, and standing across from them 
is this skinny Jewish tent maker guy with his hands bound in chains. And yet, as we're going to go on to see, especially the next time we come together, it's not the one that is in chains that is on trial here. Everything flips. And it's the people that are sitting up on the the judge's bench that are actually the ones that are going to be on trial. Luke uses a very interesting Greek word here. Back in verse 23, when it says that Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, that Greek word pomp uh, is, uh, translated pomp, is the Greek word fantasia, from which, of course, we get the word fantasy. And Luke here is looking at what is perhaps the most stable, most impressive, most weighty thing in the society of that day, the Roman Empire, and the people that represent the Roman Empire. And notice what Luke is suggesting. It's all fantasy. He says, it's all this little pretend world that these people are living in. In a time, in time, each one of those leaders would pass off the scene. Every one of them died. Eventually, even the Roman Empire, the ruling empire of the world for hundreds and hundreds of years, even the ruling empire, Rome, passed away. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that little skinny man in dirty, ragged clothes, no doubt, with chains on his hands, that prevailed. And the gospel of Jesus Christ continues to prevail to this day. You can go over to Rome if you want, and you can see the ruins of that once mighty empire, but the gospel of Jesus Christ continues to prevail. And all the pomp and all the circumstance and all the illusions of grandeur that were associated with this hearing and the flags and the banners and the horns and people marching in and the clapping and all of that stuff has faded away into history. And yet Jesus Christ, the one who Festus thought was such a trivial thing for people to contend over he keeps talking about some guy named Jesus who Paul said was dead but or they said was dead but Paul insists was alive I don't understand why they're fighting over this that Jesus who Festus thought was just such a trivial thing he remains and he continues today to transform lives 2,000 years later Paul was one of those transformed lives which He will once again proclaim in the next chapter when he shares his testimony for a fifth time. Paul had hated Jesus, hated him. Never met him, we don't think, in person, but hated him. He hated his disciples, that is, Jesus' disciples. Paul was a man that was determined to destroy the Christian faith. And then he met the risen Lord, and because he did, he would never be the same again. And many of us, we have that same story, don't we? Maybe we didn't hate Jesus so much, but we can testify to how Jesus Christ has changed our lives so that we will never be the same again. Jesus Christ is still changing lives today. And it's not because of the memory of some wonderful things that he did in the past, and it's not even because of some of the things that he taught in the past that we can go back and we can look at and think, oh, that's really good, as if he were like Socrates or Plato or something like that. Jesus Christ is still changing lives today because Jesus is alive and he is still working in lives today. 
And the beautiful thing for us to know this morning is that he can work in each one of our lives as well. What hope that gives. Amen? Amen. Is that every one of our lives is not beyond hope. And you can look at your life, and some of us are way gone, and we're messed up. And others of us, we look like we got it all together, and we're cleaned up. But every one of us can look down into our hearts and see that there is an area. There's a thing. And we have the hope that Jesus Christ can change even that. And so whether we're talking about the initial act of being saved from our sin and the coming consequence of that sin, we're talking about that getting saved, we use that phrase a lot, or we're talking about the changing process that takes place over time, what the Bible calls sanctification, as Jesus changes us more into his image than our own, because our own is a mess. But his is good, his is holy, his is pure. And Jesus changes us into the image of his son as we submit to his leading in our lives. Whatever one we're talking about, the initial salvation or the post-sanctification, Jesus Christ is still doing that. And that's why we come and we follow him, we worship him, we look to him, we pray to him, we talk to him, we interact with him, we have a relationship with him. Not with somebody from a history book, with a man that is alive, Jesus Christ. And so the question we have to ask this morning is this, do you know Jesus Christ? Or do you know about Jesus Christ? I went to Africa in, I think it was the year 2000, a long, long time ago. And as I was, I was in this village, it, it was a village that had about five, 6,000 people. So pretty sizable for that. Um, you know, and here come in five white guys into this village uh, that was out in the middle of nowhere. And so for many of the kids and stuff, it was the first time they ever saw the white guy come into their village. And so, you know, they're, they're rushing up. They want to talk to you and touch your skin and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and there, and, and interesting, you know, they, they got like these small little houses, you know, uh, not much bigger than like a shed that many of us would have. Uh, but they had running water and, and all of that electricity and stuff. Most of them made a block. Uh, and TV. Too bad. You know, they, you, got, you got everything going for it. And they would have, uh, like, satellite TV. And I don't know if that's the right term. They would get, like, three channels. Really bad preachers and wrestling. You know what I mean? Like, professional wrestling or whatever. And so th I was younger then, and they kept calling me Stone Cold. And, uh, who, who, who is, uh, who's a wrestler, uh, if you don't know it? And so they were familiar with some American things. And they, they kept asking me, uh, do you know Michael Jordan? Now, if we were like chit-chatting and, and you were like, do you know Michael Jordan? Yeah, sure, you know the guy. But they met, do I know Michael Jordan? Am I his friend? Are we pals or whatever? And it struck me, that's how many people have a relationship with God. They know a lot about him. They could tell you all the stats, all the things he accomplished, you know, what people refer to him as, all this kind of stuff. But they don't have a relationship with him, even as I did not have a relationship, obviously, with Michael Jordan. And it gave us an opportunity to explain what it means to really know Jesus. And so this morning, again, I, I throw that out there. Do you know Jesus, or do you just know about Jesus? And even for those of us that can answer that first question, absolutely I know him. I came to the faith you know, 25 years ago, and it was at this day or in, in this particular place. 
Are you walking in relationship with Jesus today? Is Jesus still speaking into your life? Are you still listening? Are you still responding? Are you allowing him to change you? Because Jesus Christ is alive and he still changes lives. And it's not just one initial event. It's a process that, that happens as we continue to submit ourselves to him. This is what Paul would write. It was in one of the last books that he wrote in the New Testament, the book of Philippians. It was while he was in prison. It's called one of his prison epistles. And he said this. He says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. 25 years, 30 years after he'd be become a Christian, and Paul was saying, I still want to know him, and I want to experience his transforming power in my life. That's what God would have every one of us press on to. And so whether you've been a believer for some 50 years, as some people here in our congregation, or 50 days, as some people here in our congregation, submit yourself to the Lord daily. Let the Lord search you. When he puts his finger on an area of your life, give it over to him and let him change you into the image of his son. Amen? That's his desire. It's good too, isn't it? It's painful sometimes. But looking back, it's good. Very, very good. Let's pray together. Father, we want you to work in us. Lord, and we want to know the reality that you are alive. Lord, I think theologically, probably everyone in this room or close to it, knows that but experientially we want to come to know that we want to have intimacy of relationship with you we want to hear your voice we want to recognize your leading and lord we want to respond to what it is you're saying to us and so lord like paul we want to know you and we want to experience the mighty power that raised you from the dead we believe that's a prayer that honors you. And so we lift it up in Jesus' name. Amen.